for May 22nd, 2023. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 777. Jarnathan. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. Our friend Matt Rather is deep in the underdark with his beloved questing uh, against all hope for the sacred MacGuffin that will save the world. No, Rather's on his honeymoon. We're all very excited for him. He's finally getting to travel, see the world with his love and and kind of celebrate their nuptials. Uh, And uh, as such, you'll be having a couple of episodes with just us, but we are going to be bringing in some new folks and well, new folks, some familiar faces that may not always be able to join us. And I'm very excited for one of them to be with us today. So first in the alphabet uh, is Ben Adams. Ben, welcome back. How are you doing? Hail and well met, fellow traveler. I'm I'm doing well. I am so glad that your location vis-a-vis the Earth is such as that your time zone is not prohibited for you being able to chat with us today. I appreciate it. Um, and uh, we also have Mark Lee. Mark, of course, always with us in our hearts or literally on this podcast over the course of the last 13 or so odd years. I, I lose track. Um, how are you doing, Mark? Pretty good. Uh, excited for tonight's topic. Um, I, I'm going to play the character of a bard. Is that fair to say? Is that fitting yes. in my, with with uh, what, what, who you know me to be? I think so. The question is more right. what kind, what 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 college of bard are you? I think would be a good question. Oh, they're colleges. Um, oh man, I don't yeah, know. It gets pretty complicated. <laughs> yeah, I think. I mean, not not like uh, not like I uh, you know uh, ITT Tech. Like as in, are you an eloquence bard? Are you a valor bard? Et cetera, et cetera. But we don't have to go into that too much detail. Today we're going to talk about Dungeons and Dragons a little bit specifically. We all got a chance to see Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves, which came out a little while ago, but is just now available on streaming on Paramount+. Plus. So if you've got uh, kids and you watch your Nick Jr. on there, or you watch your Star Trek on there, or you uh, you watch a Tom Selleck show where he's a cowboy, or whatever else is on Paramount+, Plus, uh, you know, go, uh, go check out Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves, because we're going to discuss it. We're also going to be discussing Dungeons & Dragons in a somewhat more general sense, the occasion for it being... And those of you who have done this uh, will know how important it is. And those of you who haven't will not care is that I have I have just finished a three year long online Dungeons and Dragons campaign that we started at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic uh, and when our ability to play in person all shut down. I got a new group of people together with some old faces and new faces. And I've been playing more or less once a week for three years. And we have finally defeated Volkathu, the Dark Devourer, and saved the, like, maybe 200 people still alive in the world. Uh, (laughs) It was quite a journey. (laughs) We're counting it as a win, people. We're putting a W in the column. Was it worth it, Pete? Yeah, what's up? Was it all worth it? Was it worth it? Was it all worth it? Was it worth it? What did it cost? Everything. No, it was totally worth it. I made a lot of money. It was great. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) It was... was, you have ten thousand gold pieces to distribute to the two hundred people remaining in the world to buy to buy their products and goods. Yes, yes. I I have I had a line item in our bag of holding that literally said mountains of platinum uh, because we my character was so avaricious. Those are those are all <laughs> long, long stories. 
This was a campaign that crossed many different planes of existences and universes. So the camp, the universe with only 200 people left was the main one we were trying to save. All the other ones are fine, <laughs> more or less. It's very complicated. But the point being that uh, I, you know, I have a lot that I've gone through emotionally with this big campaign coming to an end. And it seems like a good time to talk about Dungeons & Dragons. And this movie can serve as a vehicle for us to talk about it. Now, of course, it should go without saying that when we're talking about Dungeons & Dragons, there's a lot of fuzzy boundaries between Dungeons & Dragons and other tabletop role-playing games, as well as kind of other games of various sorts. So just as a blanket disclaimer, I think a lot of what we're going to be talking about under the sort of Dungeons & Dragons name is very relevant to other tabletop role-playing games, which you should also check out if you're into them. Uh, but but I think um, you might even begin to argue that Dungeons & Dragons have become something of a generic name, which, of course, Witches of the Coast, the, la- the lawyers are parachuting into your house right now hmm. if we claim that on this podcast. So uh, I mean, we'll- like, my entry point, really, for this movie is, like, not even Dungeons & Dragons specifically, what 5th edition, you know, uh, whatever realm that you described this takes place in. And we'll get into all that in a second. But it's like, okay, this is a high fantasy, high adventure thing. Yes. I got it. Yes. I, 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 I you know, I played Ultima video games back in the day seen my lord of the rings uh i know about my elves and my orcs and my magical uh, amulets and this that and the other so um you know I, i'm a neophyte in the specifics of dungeons and dragons but am uh, was you know curious and interested to to see this and was very pleasantly surprised about how entertaining it was and i'm sure there are millions and millions of very delightful easter eggs that i missed that uh, that you all really um were satisfied satisfied by so uh i don't know guys where should we start well, I will like, start by saying that the only thing that would have made this movie better would have been if it were exactly the same but were called Ultima, because that would have been really great if this were the Ultima <laughs> movie and like Lord British shows up at the end, because uh, then we can all really nerd out. But no, um, also just for context, Mark never played not even the Star Wars tabletop role playing game. Never played a tabletop role playing game at all. I've never played a tabletop role playing game. Yeah. Ever. But you, Full stop. But you played lots of video games that are based off of the mechanics that were developed in tabletop role-playing games. The rule sets, I, it's all familiar. Yeah, I wouldn't say enough. I'd say I, I played enough of it. Yeah, XP, yeah, yeah classes, dexterity, uh, charisma, etc. Yeah. yeah. And points. Ben, you are currently a dungeon master. That is correct, yeah. Okay, of like a full-on multi-year Dungeons & Dragons campaign. Yes, I've been DMing for a group of friends for about the last year and a half. For two years, I can't remember exactly. We started at some point remote during the pandemic. I can't remember exactly when we started. Were you doing it in person before the pandemic, and then you moved remote, or is this a new thing? It was mostly remote because the the friend group is remote anyway, or at least I was. Uh, but and then I but I had played with this group like once or twice in person on like group vacations or meetups or things like that before it went to to online. Great, great. Now, are you close to the end, or do you still have a lot of ways to go? We've we've got a ways to go. We are we are close to the end of the the first kind of big arc I had planned. Uh, but there's a, a bunch of other stuff. To, they they have not gotten to the world ending plane devouring uh, BBEG just yet. Do you know what it's going to be? Have you figured that out? I mean, you don't have to tell I, them or us. I, I have I have some ideas. I, in particular, I have an idea of who the like arch bad guy of the whole thing is going to be. Right. But there's a lot of there's a lot of road to cover between here and there. Well, that's why we brought Mark on the calls because we know it's going to be inspired by Mark, and so we want to make sure you get a good chance to do some research on him. He's, he, is, he is a world devourer. <laughs> the big bad, the big bad, is like a, a semi-reformed former uh, a, a government bureaucrat who uh, has turned to the evils of capitalism. Oh, okay, I'm, I'm, no, I'm, I think I think the big bad is is your uh, is your slash esque guitar solo name. 
It's like the uh, when you when you moonlight in uh, heavy metal bands as a wandering. Oh, I like this. Yeah, is there like a dark bard who is like who instead of just as jolly and plays his lute and uh, you know lifts everyone's <laughs> spirits like and plays like can a I tell you a, that rip an electric guitar and is like a demon? Can I tell you? No kidding. That the 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 big bad guy that I have planned actually is a bard. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because, like, is there a dark bard sounds like the kind of conversation that I definitely would have been part of in, like, 1995 or 1994. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, uh, I mean, you want to play some dark bards, you can go to some Vampire the Masquerade, you get some real dark bards. Mm, no. But, uh, I mean, you can play a dark bard. Sure, you can play anything edgy, man. There's edges all over the place. It's 20-sided die. It's a lot of edges. There's um, a bard named Edge in, in our real world. That's right, indeed. And one named Slash. To create edges. They're all related. Uh, but anyway, Chris Pine is in this movie about Dungeons and Dragons. And the way to which is it is about Dungeons and Dragons is probably the first thing that we would want to tackle. Because this is a this is a Dungeons and Dragons movie in some very complicated ways that I was pretty impressed by uh, this movie. Uh, and again, spoilers for Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves. Also, spoiler for the homebrew campaign Portals at the End of the World that my uh, dear Dungeon Master John has run for several groups now. Uh, and uh, and no spoilers for Ben's campaign because he hasn't come up with them yet. He's still working on spoilers. Mm-hmm. But uh, but yes, um, the, well, how, how is this a Dungeons and Dragons movie? Like what's why? How, in what way is this a Dungeons and Dragons movie? I guess is the first question I'll like float out to the group. Because I think, Mark, you probably had one perception of it. Maybe we'll start, Mark, with your perception of how Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves is a Dungeons & Dragons movie. A good question, because I could conceive of the same script, you know, being titled literally anything else and without any tie into the Dungeons & Dragons, uh, officially tie into the Dungeons & Dragons IP, and it probably would have worked. But again, like, you know, for the um, probably for the for the greater fanatics, like, you know, it, it just takes on the, the extra level. So for my surface level understanding of D&D. What makes us a, a D&D movie is that you have a party of different character classes, character types, um, and they go on a quest. Um, again, like a, a lot of this is like, you know, kind of pretty generic to, to high fantasy. Um, so what makes it D&D? Uh, there, there is a dungeon, uh, and inside of the dungeon is a dragon, and he's delightfully chunky, and we should talk about that later. Um, there's a gelatinous cube. I know about gelatinous cubes and, uh, I, uh, that it's a thing and that it's kind of an inside running joke. And, uh, I got, I got a kick out of that, um, and that it's, it's kind of silly. And, um, uh, but still was, was, you know, kind of a integral part of, of, of the, of, of the plot. Um, I, I'm, if you, if you think I'm, sound like I'm grasping the straws here, it might be yeah. because I'm grasping the straws here. I'm not yeah. really sure what made this a TNT movie. Yeah. So like, so, so to summarize that, right. This is Dungeons and Dragons. If you were to say, look at the old Dungeons and Dragons cartoon, a bunch of other random Dungeons and Dragons stuff over the years, it's just one out of many brands that you could slap something, slap on this sort of thing, and you know we'd we'll, we only have to change it like a little bit. I mean, obviously you would change a lot of the surface level stuff that's the kind of world building and things, which is also part of what makes the Dungeons and Dragons movie. Like it takes place in a Dungeons and Dragons setting, so the places and the kind, and the, a lot of the monsters and a lot of the the treasures and the scenarios are, are all out of published material. That's kind of part of the intellectual property of this whole big body of work that's been put together over the last 50 some odd years or so. Um, but there are other ways that this is a Dungeons and Dragons movie. So, but, but they are most apparent to the people who play 
a bunch of Dungeons and Dragons. It's in, the movie so, is elegant in that it does not tip its hat that this is what is happening uh, to the people who don't play Dungeons and Dragons. But Ben, how how is this a Dungeons and Dragons movie? So I'm and I'm not as familiar with most published material. Every pretty much I think all of the D and D I've done has been you know homebrew campaigns. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm aware of Forgotten Realms and things like that, but I'm, I'm yeah. not Nobody really. Cares about it doesn't Forgotten bring Realms. anything. Yeah. And so to me, what stood out in the movie that makes this a Dungeons and Dragons movie and not a generic like why it's Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves and why it's not just a fantasy movie called Honor Among Thieves was what really stood out was kind of the design of what in D&D would be called an encounter. Mm-hmm. Uh, each of the fight and action scenes and even the uh, you know non-fight action scenes really felt like someone who played, like someone was playing a game of Dungeons and Dragons. The way they were set up with like what seemed like checks or, uh, you know, skill checks of various kinds and having to proceed from one thing to the other, it all played out very similarly to how I could imagine it playing out on the table. Uh, in in a way that Dungeons and Dragons has of making kind of you know unexpected things unexpectedly interesting and delightful. Like the where the where I really caught this for the first one was the the part where Holga is escaping from being beheaded by hitting the guy with a rock, while uh, Edric Chris Pine's character is trying and failing to cut his bonds with a rope, because that just you can just totally imagine the real people behind those coming up with a stupid plan to escape. One person rolling well, one person rolling badly, and then the Holga character has to fight the whole thing out by herself while the other character desperately tries to roll and, and get loose and do something like that. That's a Dungeons and Dragons session just all by itself. Yeah, I like to say that du- at least the fifth edition of Dungeons and Dragons, the current edition, is a is a failure machine. But just the way the game is structured is you're you're supposed to succeed, succeed, succeed and fail. Succeed, succeed, and fail. And the things that happen that are interesting are often the failures. It's not a strategically all that complicated, um, and it's not really strategically all that sort of coherent in a lot of ways. Um, I mean, maybe people will take me to task for that, but this is maybe this is just the way I play it, having played you know for a bunch of years now. Uh, that that the the things that really define the scope of what's going on tend to be when somebody fails to do something with their, that they're trying to do. So why is Helga fighting by herself? Oh, because Edric is trying to cut his bonds and can't get out, right? Like, why are they even on the quest? Well, why why are why is the sorcerer kind of struggling? Well, he he failed the the role to attune to the helmets, right? And so like he has to keep rerolling that until he succeeds. And if he doesn't, then the uh, the mm. sor- sorcerers are going to get him, right? Like, there's a bunch of situations they get into, and and because of this, it all has this not because of it. It's there's a virtuous circle of the reinforcement of madcap zaniness and failure because it's like failure, but they don't want it to be very deadly failure. A lot of the time, the game as it is now is pretty forgiving in terms of screwing things up. It's very hard to die. You really have to work at it uh, to, for your character to die in this game. I know people will disagree with me, but uh, believe me, I know, Uh, you know, my, my, my uh, PC did die in the last campaign and I really had to work for it. Uh, but, um, but relative to previous ones is too, too. So, so there's a whole bunch of, I guess the way to sum it up is there are a bunch of not just intellectual property elements, not just superficial or aesthetic elements and not just traditions that are associated with Dungeons and Dragons. And also this, which would be the sort of world with which I would identify, say the Willow television show we talked about recently, where it's taking all that stuff like intellectual property, classic archetypes, 
high fantasy setting, some sort of known nostalgic thing that everybody likes and sort of stories people are somewhat familiar with, and then gives it a contemporary sensibility because it's a contemporary movie. And, and you know, none of the people talk like they're from imaginary old-timey places that never existed. They all kind of talk like contemporary people. Uh, and that's the, that's sort of the vibe we're going for. And this is the Dungeons & Dragons one, as opposed to all the other ones that have ever existed. Like, there's this extra element where a lot of the movie is coming out of the play experiences of the Dungeons & Dragons game in recognizable ways. And, and what I would all further point out is that there's a whole tradition also – pretty developed at this point of people making narrative art out of Dungeons and Dragons games. I mean, it goes back to Dragonlance. It goes way back. Right. So like there's a, just the very, the very idea I think of the populated expected high fantasy world is really more of a product of, of people writing down and making fiction out of their games than it is out of how any of it was like originally designed, right? Like it, none of this really resembles Tolkien all that much. Um, but, but if you really want to get to the earliest places where it's really recognizable as contemporary, I think you go back to Dragonlance, which is, you know, published by wizards of the coast, uh, as an official thing, but was also a campaign that the people who were making it were, were in, and they took the characters they were playing and made them into characters in these books. And there's been a lot of shows in which either a, People play a game, tabletop role play game, Dungeons and Dragons, whatever, take the story that gets told in the game, because ultimately the output of the game is the story, as well as the, like, good feeling, fun times that you have. And, and just to pause for a second, like, confirm, like, it's, like, outlined and heavily directed by the DM, but also heavily influenced by the characters, the, the, the players, and the decisions. Yes, that, that's a really... The, the story... Let, let, me, let, me, yeah. let me finish this sentence, and let's come sure. back to that, sure. okay? Because yes, what, yeah. I, what I wanted, because that's a really insightful thing that you just said, and it's and it's worth talking about. Um, I would say is that there's also a bunch of shows where there are two realities. There's the reality of the people playing the game, and then there is the game. And whether it's a video game or a tabletop role playing game, right? Stuff like what I mean, I haven't really watched a bunch of these, but what come to mind are like the Guild, right? Mystic Quest. Um, the one the episode with of Community Harmon. where they play Dungeons and Dragons. What's up? The one, the one episode of Community where they play Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, 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 exactly. And there's a whole bunch of different ones where, I mean, we there was one called Quest that was a live show that a bunch of my friends did for a bunch of years, you know, here in, in Greater Boston. Uh, I feel like it's a very well trodden kind of storytelling where it's like, here's what people are like when they're in high school, and here's what they like when they're pretending to be barbarians. I mean, Stranger Things has an element of this in it. Sort of right. Uh, where like they role play and you sort of they describe what's happening in the game and then it's them as people. And then what's happening in the game kind of also sort of happening in their real life. Uh, this is a very well established a kind of subgenre of high fantasy storytelling. Um, and it felt like to me what Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves was doing was it was telling that story of a Dungeons and Dragons campaign. People are playing the game. These are the things that are happening in the game. And you would be cutting back and forth between seeing the things happening in the game and then the people playing it. But then they just took out all the scenes where the people were playing it. You know, so there are still things that are recognizably the product of like a person making up a character, a person going through a scenario like this, but an encounter like this. Right. Like uh, things that felt like more of an of a game experience than a diegesis, you know, of of high fantasy expectations, what's happening in the world, all that stuff. 
I think um, I'll point just a quick example of that, like the graveyard scene, where like through trial and error, we're resurrecting people oh, over yeah. and over again. And like, why, them, why, why do you only on? have to ask five yeah. questions? Like, it's in the rule book. That's why. Yeah, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, that's the reason. Um, was, but they don't. And that scene that was completely action. delightful, by the way. Oh yeah, that that's really fun. That's really fun. But but I don't want to let it go. So what you suggested there, I think Ben, you could probably weigh in on this because you probably have a lot of experience in this as a dungeon master. I would not necessarily characterize. Dungeons and Dragons, especially the kind that Ben and I have probably have been playing, I'm guessing, which is the kind where it's like very heavily homebrew, right? Where where you're not playing a published module with like a decision tree where, where it's really clear what's going to happen and the dungeon is kind of already done um, and it's already all mapped out and, and it's not going to change. The idea that the Dungeon Master sort of sets up the whole game for everybody and everybody else goes through it isn't really the way it works, um, at least, at least in my experience. Uh, and I mean, Ben, do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a, you know, cause I've done I did some reading for starting as a DM cause I didn't have much experience as a player. And there, there's a, there's a push pull when you're setting up a campaign as a dungeon master for between on the one hand, you want to tell a good story and a, you know, if you're sitting down to write a screenplay, a good story has a beginning, a middle and an end. It has character development, and you you know ideally you probably know the ending when you start to write the story and you you can fill things in to match the ending to your story. That's called being put on rails and it's generally bad as a dungeon <laughs> master. Like you don't want to put your players in a setting where they only have one option and all the players get to do is just roll dice to decide to, to see if they do the option good or not. Right, right, right. It's I think so there's the a lot of, there's want... a lot of ink spilled on the internet about railroading players. Right. Um I mean I my my, my the... favorite articulation of it is probably along the lines of uh one of what was one of Matt Colville's where it's like don't don't like don't put yourself in the situation as a dungeon master of saying no to the players' cool ideas because they don't fit the story that you want to tell. Or right. they're bad ideas as well. Is that fair? Well, no, no, no. You that's no, 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 no. Or there that are part. no bad ideas. No, 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 no. That's also not true. There are definitely bad ideas, and you don't say no to them, right? Like, like yes. a lot of Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> is embracing the players' bad ideas mm-hmm. and then sh- letting them roll for it and showing the consequences, <laughs> which like may go up to and include like their own deaths or the end of the world, right? <laughs> so like you're allowed. Part of what makes the game fun, at least from my perspective, is that is the degree to which the game allows you to fail. Um, and I mean, I did joke that, that it's not a particularly fatal system, but, uh, but a lot of, I mean, a video game is not really going to let you fail in this way that you could fail in Dungeons and Dragons campaign or like come up with a really stupid idea. Right. Um, um, so in the movie, an example from the movie, um, example from the movie is that at the end, when the red wizards are enacting the right in Neverwinter to turn the Coliseum full of people into zombies, and the party has stolen all the loot from the Lord of Neverwinter and is fleeing the city by ship. And they decide to turn around and go back to Neverwinter because, you know, it's the right thing to do. And also, I think because Edric promised, which he didn't have to do, that he would give the money uh, from the Lord back to the people. Right. That's sort of weighing on his mind as he's doing this. Um, in, if you were the DM of that campaign, you have to be prepared for the players deciding not to go back. And just being like, screw it, I'm out of here. I got all the money. You know, like, like they are. That is more than I want to deal with. And in fact, I would even venture to say there are entire published modules where that happens at like the beginning of the game, and you're really not expected to do anything about it. Like, you do encounter things in Dungeons and Dragons which are really beyond what your characters are expected to be able to deal with. And while a dungeon master should always be ready for the 
situation where the characters decide to deal with it anyway, right? Like, never be careful about forcing your characters to surrender. They player characters, players don't like surrendering. They might get themselves all killed, right? Like um, that kind of thing. Um, you know, setting up an impossible encounter for them if they don't know that they're supposed to run, they might not run. But at the same time, yeah, there, the, yeah, there is no way. There's no way to describe a monster in scary enough terms that will actually convince the player characters that they cannot kill this monster. Right. If they feel like it, because if they don't feel like they can also just leave. Right. Like they can also just go. Um, there's uh, uh, and so if you imagine this movie ending with a sequel, you know, a sort of a sequel. Uh, a cliffhanger of them like sailing away into the ocean and then the sort of whiz red wizards are kind of like spreading out over the countryside right and then like oh one of them is cursed or something and like you know they have a cursed piece of gold the alternate skeletons no that's that's been done but you know what i'm talking about right like uh that uh that 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 the the dungeon master uh, i i think i like it i'll say that this is a style that i enjoy when the choices that the players make uh are really creating you know, the sort of like like there's a certain draw distance problem like Dungeons and Dragons is played on the N64 where the draw distance is like pretty shallow for detailed things where there's like a big map, you know, and there's like a big idea of where you could go. But like if you're actually going in any particular direction, the, the draw distance tends to be pretty shallow. And if you go in any sort of direction, you're not supposed to go in like the, the DM would have to come up with stuff you're going to come into contact with like pretty fast. Uh, one common thing is like, oh, they decided not to go to the town that I told them about. They're going to go to a different town. They'd never been to that town. How about I just make the town that I thought they were going to into the other town and don't tell them that it's a different town. That's the same town and they'll never know. And I don't have to do more prep. Right. Like uh, there's there's all sorts of stuff like that. That is part of the storytelling style. Right. It's like the players create the problems. The players well, they don't create all the problems. But the players like create challenges for the DM and the DM comes up with ways to kind of move the story forward in response to what the players are doing. Um, even to the point of, you know, creating elements of the story that are mirroring back to the players what they are saying about their own characters. Um, you know, like, uh, yeah, I think a big part of it is also like having the story be about the players choices. So like if the players decide to, you know, rob, steal a magic item instead of paying the noble who owns it for the magic item, like the DM is very happy because the DM now has the bad guy for the next stage of the campaign, which is this mm. angry noble who they've pissed off, right? Yeah. And will start sending assassins against them or whatever. And yes. then, you know, the, the players find this out, and then they have to decide, okay, we could go kill the noble, we could go, you know, pay him off, and then, you you know, the, ideally the players' choices matter and are just fed back into the story engine for more story, for more choices, with the successes or failures just dictating which way the story goes. Yeah. Which we yeah. see played out in the movie, right? Uh, to, well, maybe not not linearly, so importantly, right? You know, as um, I think this is, is this is when Chris Pine is, is giving the big speech, right? Which is very crucially about how all the characters have failed <laughs> a lot along the way, right? You know, very clearly his actions, right? When he stole from the Red Wizards, that brought about um, a very negative uh, outcome for him, um, and so like like this sounds very obvious, right? But like one of the things that makes this movie good is that the characters are well drawn out and have very specific motivations that come from the direct consequences of their actions, in particular, the, the, the main character, Chris Pine. Would you, would you say that's fair? 
Oh yeah, I'm not even even more than just the main characters. I would I would say it's remarkable, especially because I've seen the other Dungeons and Dragons movie, the one with Jeremy Irons. Um, <laughs> he's chewing. I, I've only seen the clip where he's like just like chewing scenery, like it's like like it's a big turkey leg that you get from the Ren fair, which very very obviously they are eating at one point yeah. in the movie. Well, that's in the subgenre of like the players get sucked into the game stories, which are often just. Just terrible. Uh, okay. like just Tron esque. I didn't know just, that was that was. Sad. But yeah. no, but but um, it, I think it's very easy to conceive of a Dungeons and Dragons story in a superficial way as having a very, very vague and and very uh, very narrow sort of problem that you have to deal with at the end, right? Like it's a big monster. Why is it there? It's a monster, right? Like you got to kill the monster. That's 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 one of the challenges I think of playing this game or even any stories that are about this sort of thing. And I mean, you can extend this to Marvel movies, to anything, you know, there's got to be a fight at the end. What's the fight in the end going to be about? Why are they fighting? Like, what, what is it? Why does it matter? What's the point of them fighting at the end? You know, and uh, um, in this story, they did a really good job of giving every character really clear personal stakes and choices that related to how they cared about the end. And I don't think that it's a foregone conclusion that that would be the case in a movie that's about Dungeons and Dragons, because you could just put Tiamat at the end, right? And it's like, oh, they got to fight Tiamat, whoa, which is like the big god queen of dragons or whatever. And then it's like, oh, no, there's a portal. And then you're then you're in Shang-Chi territory where it's like, what? I liked the part on the bus. Why are they here? What's happening? Right? Like, um, Because it's the idea is like we are compelled to have a fight at the end. Um, so in my, in my own campaign, the fight at the end was like the last stand against the von Neumann machine that was consuming reality. And the idea being that there's this one choke point before the von Neumann machine gets into the portal system that allows it to travel to all possible universes and consume all of existence. So you're, you're sort of making a stand at the last point. It's like a lot like if the whole thing was structured a lot like the mist where like everybody is trapped in one city that's surrounded by these like dark nebulous sort of monsters that are uh they're a von neumann machine they're a gray goose scenario where they're devouring the world and Sorry, what's, uh, what's a von neumann machine you say that like that's a generic term oh, that uh, ben do you want to explain what a von neumann machine is you're <laughs> sure, in the military so you guys came up with that sort of thing <laughs> did they did did the military i mean i know it's like no, game no. theory but i know it's like kind of the 1950s where everybody worked for the military in, in game theory but a uh, von neumann machine is just it's a machine that can that makes itself and or or more 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 to the point makes can make two of itself uh given raw materials and so therefore it in theory self-replicates uh and if the raw materials that it needs are you know the earth then it eats the earth because you build this machine that makes two of itself that makes four of itself et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Huh. okay got it yeah it's a nightmare scenario it's if you ever watch the canadian sci-fi show lex which is a great touch point that the villain of, of one of the seasons of Lex is a von Neumann machine. That's a series of bodiless arms that fly around the universe, making other arms out of everything that they encounter <laughs> until they are just like huge hordes of billions of disembodied arms, just flying about in big sort of foghorn leghorn style swarms of bees, uh, you know, taking on entire planets and whatnot. Um, but yes, so, so this was and a gray goo is a term for when that happens in a, in a like biological context, like a, like a, you know, a, Bio, a biological organism that recreates itself from available material, uh, like sort of to an unspecified extent, you know, infinitely such that it can consume everything. It's a doomsday scenario. And so this was a this was a campaign where there was a recurring doomsday scenario where this like it was a cycle where every once in a while this devourer would show up and eat reality. And the gods would like enlist a couple of heroes to go fight this thing off. 
after it had eaten most of reality, you know, like ah, after it had kind of, you know, cleansed its palate a little bit. And then they got to repopulate the universes with whatever they wanted. And it was this sort of way, uh, at least the way I perceived it was it was a way of the gods to kind of continue to exert control over the world. Uh, and our characters were sort of in the sort of refugee resettlement program and then ended up getting sucked into this like crazy scheme of fighting this thing and getting all of the MacGuffins and the magical crystals and the magical amulets and like uh, trying to, there's a cult that's trying to accelerate it. And there's another one that's trying to stop it. People are taking magical oaths that were, that are semi-automated that have been up for thousands of years. And you don't know what's going to do. Uh, the, the point being that like, sorry, um, why are you fighting at the end? And and I think a big part of the campaign was to kind of problematize the question of like why the world needs to be saved, right? Like because the world is kind of terrible, and everybody is kind of irresponsible, and the people running it are like pretty bad. And uh, in this case, this included the municipal bureaucracy. You would have really appreciated that part of the campaign. Like, <laughs> like there was a uh, talk about oh, choices. Boy. Not to not to go too deep on my own campaign and answering the question, but to express a little bit of it, there was a particular sort of sergeant, and I might have mentioned this in the podcast before. I've definitely mentioned the Discord. There's a particular sort of like leader of the city guard who's like a hero, uh, sort of dwarven woman who is a sort of brave and stalwart figure in the defense of the city who's trying to administer and manage the whole kind of emergency response to everything through the guard, who is supposed to be your boss. And so she's supposed to be sort of your commissioner, Gordon, and she has like a battle axe in her closet that she's supposed to sort of take out in the last battle and help you if you're like on good terms with her. But we got on very bad terms with her early on because one of our teammates died and uh, my character requested that he get back pay to pay for his funeral and she wouldn't like issue him extra pay. And so they, so he, so I made that like a big thing. And it's like, I'm burying my friend, you know, like I need to. And so he's like, oh, you got to have your papers if you're going to go to any unauthorized part of the city because they don't really trust us. Uh, and then, you know, I was going to the florist to buy flowers for my friend's funeral. And I got accosted by a guard and had to bribe him. And the long story short is like at the end of the story, you know, this this sergeant or person is like sort of emaciated and diminished, you know, and is like sitting in a bed recuperating from being nearly devoured. And one of your options is to like restore her and have her fight by your side. And we just like took her axe and used it ourselves because like screw that. Uh, right? So like I've talked to another camp, another group of people who've done a, the same campaign. Sort of, but similar, but different, right? Like it, they took different choices, different things happened, but the sort of same general idea because the DM runs it for multiple different groups of people. And the, oh, she was our ride or die, right? She was our best friend. So like, who are you fighting for at the end of the story? Are you fighting for like your best friends that you've made in this city that means so much to you? For us, like we hated the city. The city treated us like garbage, despite us being the only people who were trying to fix things. We kept setting things on fire when we were getting in fights, and we kept getting blamed for it, because you're not supposed to set things on fire in inhabited areas. <laughs> like, and so, like, it was very reasonable that the authorities thought we were dangerous and imprisoned us multiple times, but at the same time, like, what we were doing all made sense to us, and our characters would really have not dealt with the legal situation all that well. We often joked about how we needed a lawyer and didn't have one. <laughs> and so, like, what are you fighting for? Well, in the end, we had brought a bunch of aliens, basically, a bunch of creatures from other worlds to all fight this monster. And we were sort of fighting um, for, like, the sort of grandiosity of ourselves and for the defense of all the universes and not this city because we didn't care. We didn't care about the city. Uh, we had our own reasons, but, like, it was um, it was different than it would have been for other people. Uh, and so, like, at the end of the story – why are they fighting? Well, you know, Chris Pine thinks he's fighting to save his wife, who is part of his backstory. But in turn, it turns out he's saving his friend, who's part of his now story, which is different. Um, 
I mean, I've, I've rented a little bit. I mean, Ben, what what are your what are your characters fighting for now? Like, what are the stakes? I mean, I could go into why my why each individual character and I came in and wanted to do things. And this is also just like, how do we get away from the idea that every story has to end with a portal and a fist fight? Um, you know, like uh, like if that's the big complaint about the movies in the age of Marvel is that the endings all feel kind of the same a lot of the time. Uh, because there has to be a fight, and a lot of the time the characters aren't sufficiently motivated or invested in the stakes of the fight to make it like worth watching. Um, uh, not you know giant mechanical uh, rhinoceroses, notwithstanding, or like armored rhinoceroses, they were not mechanical. So it, so my campaign's still relatively early. They're they're kind of okay. in that first arc, uh, but so they were all present at the same. Uh, ball basically that was attacked as a and then and is now being used as the inciting event for a war uh and so they are trying to get to basically get to the figure out who incited this attack uh in order to avoid the war uh and they were hired mm-hmm. by a noble they were hired by a noble to do this gotcha. uh, because like their motivations were different enough i knew a couple of the different pcs probably didn't care too much about preventing the war uh so i needed to put some cash in there as well yeah. Uh, but see, that, but, that's that's in the movie, too. Right. The whole idea of like, oh, the Hugh Grant character is really an evil character. And like you you figure it out pretty early in the movie. But the degree, the way in which it sort of gets spun out felt pretty familiar for like the low level parts of a Dungeons and Dragons campaign where there's usually some sort of mystery. Like, who's the bad guy? What are they doing? What's happening in this town that you're in? Right. Like, um, what's the deal? The, the the opening backstory about the you're hired by this obviously evil red wizard along with your friend Hugh Grant's. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to go break into a magic castle mm. and steal a magic item. That is very much session one of a Dungeons and Dragons campaign. Like yeah, yeah. Y- the party is in a tavern. Somebody has hired you to go do a job. You're going to go do the job and get to the bottom of, you know, whatever it is. Uh, and, you know, that launches you into the the broader world. Yeah. Well, we're still talking about the character motivations. And maybe after this, we can go into something else. But um, the, all this backstory they were talking about here, right? Yes. Um, how much of that comes from the DM versus how much of that comes from the player and just kind of like <laughs> in the feeling, the white space that they've been given. Oh man. I mean, Ben, do you want to, I'll answer it first. And Ben, you tell me what you think. Um, I would say that, that there are a lot of players who bring a lot of backstory to the table. I'm one of them. I, I, oh, I, I'll of course, write a of course you are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll write a ton of backstory. I, my the character has had his, like, this is my character's real name. This is the name my character goes by. This was the name of my character's mentor who was eaten by a demon, right? This is the name of my character's parents. This is where they live, right? Like, uh, uh, I mean, my first my first character in the campaign, you know, he had he came from a whole, he, oh, he came from like a family of wilderness guides who like helped homesteaders who were looking to settle in like a particular forest. Uh, and they had a particular homestead of their own, which was where they operated out of. And like, um, and so I had all this backstory about my character and I tell it to the DM before you start the game, right? It's like, before you're actually starting the game, you sort of say, Hey, this is what I'm thinking. And the DM, I it's too much. You, you want to give them broad strokes because you want, what you're hoping for is that the DM will give you a hook to connect the story to your backstory in some way. That's like what you dream of when you come up with a ton of backstory. Um, and if you give the DM too much, that becomes impossible. And it also becomes impossible to like align what your backstory is with like the things that are happening. Um, one of the one of the better hooks in another campaign I did, one of my backstory was that I came from like a family in the wool mafia. 
like a sort of organized crime family that was in a sort of like wool maker, wool weavers and, and a cartel. But he was the dumb one in the family and he took care of the sheep or something along those lines. Or he like when he was working at the waterfront for the first time as like a tough or something along those lines. And then like, oh, OK, so you're this campaign is about you guys killing this giant that is across the country. It's so like a road trip to go kill a giant. Let's say the giant stole these sheep. Right. And you care about the sheep because you're in the wool mafia and you care about the sheep because you're a druid and they're natural creatures of great beauty. And you care about the sheep because you're a warlock and your patron has asked for them. Right. And so like the DM was coming up with ways in which everything was connecting with everybody's backstories. But like the more complicated the backstory is, the harder it is to do that. Um, so in my, here, yeah. it's, it's a collaboration, basically. Well, yeah, it's it's a it's a push it's and pull, and yeah. but it's a funny push and pull where there's a fair amount of failure. Uh, I mean, I thought it was really funny in this movie upon reflection that that Chris Pine decides not to bring back his wife ostensibly because his wife was in his backstory, <laughs> you know, like, and it's like, well, is my backstory really that important? <laughs> right. Like, like hmm. the things well, that happened before the, the adventure is really like, happening. If, if, if the player character is the one that dies yes. and you don't resurrect the player character because you want to save the resurrection stone for the backstory dead <laughs> wife, that's like so you're bad <laughs> in real life, you think your actual in real life friend upset with you for letting their character die. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's so good. Yeah. Like, yeah. To, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, like Mark, like, I can't give your, you the healing your pack. The player is dying. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah. I, I can't give, I, I can't resurrect you. Um, okay. So I guess, you know, you're my teacher. You're out of the, you're out of the campaign. You're out of the campaign, right? You just, <laughs> Now you now you are not part of the social gathering that we do every Wednesday night, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> that's what, what happens is your character would die, and then you would you would come up with a new character, which they didn't do in this movie, I don't think. Right? There was no point in which like a character died and they replaced him because because one of the things I didn't like about the movie is it wasn't particularly like risky in terms of what parts of D anD D it decided to show. It was creative, uh, but it didn't really show a lot of the actual difficult parts of of playing a Dungeons and Dragons game or like the con- the things that might be controversial, uh, right? Like um, nobody really went crazy. <laughs> like like there, there's a term of murder hobo, which just refers to when a Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> party just like doesn't really, it doesn't really live anywhere. It doesn't really like ha- get too invested in any particular place. It just sort of walks around from place to place and just kills anything it comes across. Um, and that is a way that, you know, I mean, you function that way. That's what Zelda is. Right up until the very end, Link just like he's just in the world and he kills everything he sees, right? Like, and that's all he does uh, for the whole game for the original Legend of Zelda. And he pushes some rocks, maybe, right? He can he does conduct several transactions for small amounts of money. That is true. And there are a couple of people that if he tries to stab them, shoot fireballs at him and are invincible. But the point being that like a Dungeon Dragons campaign is is thought to have devolved when it reaches murder hobo status and needs to be kind of reined back in so that people are behaving themselves a little bit more uh, so that the story doesn't get totally blown out. The the GTA franchise is probably like the best video game for a murder hobo because you just yeah, you blow up whatever you want. You steal whatever you want. Maybe the police come like for the moment. Yeah. But within like, you know, an encounter, you're done. Like you just move on to the next thing and and it's it's no big deal. Um, you know, and I think the part of the reason murder hoboing gets a bad rap is it's not very much fun for the dungeon master. Yeah. So just like, OK, I'm going to set up puzzles for you guys to solve and you're going to fight. But none of the narrative, like I'm not telling you a story because the story is always just you guys killed the thing right. uh, that that just like a, gets boring pretty pretty quickly for everybody involved beyond this but in particular for the dm who's like 
trying to spin something of a narrative. Speaking yeah. of difficult puzzles uh, that the DM sets up for the players to solve, is that what's being referenced with the bridge? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. So oh, can, for can sure. We, can we can we unpack that a little bit more? Yeah. Right, like, so I, I can I can tell you, uh, like at least how I see that from like how that spun out from like a game perspective, because that's like you come up with an elaborate puzzle. But while you're in the middle of like having your, you know, the the paladin character is clearly like an NPC, you know, planted there by the, a non-player character, is explaining the mechanics of the puzzle. One of the players just does something stupid, and you're like, well, the bridge fell down. Uh, the way, but this is the kind of creative failure that Pete was talking about earlier that is super fun, which is the dungeon master is like, okay, they're going to cross this bridge and they're going to solve the puzzle. They do something stupid and they can't solve the puzzle anymore because it fell down. All right, I guess the players are just going to have to come up with something creative because I'm out of ideas. Like, you guys still need to cross this bridge. You guys figure it out. Sure. Which honestly makes for some of the most fun sessions and some of the most fun storytelling because the players have to do something goofy and ridiculous. Yeah. To, and, to and, and, I, and I assume that, that the, the rules that the Paladin character is setting up was like an extreme parody of, but, but that has some, some kernel of truth there into it. Is that fair to say? I don't think it's an extreme parody. The way he explains it is played for laughs. But like, I mean, we our whole campaign was built around a like, Fibonacci sequence versus spiral of prime numbers sort of math problem. Wow. Which was, yeah. So like we were, <laughs> I mean, I was really impressed, but the, the universe had, it was something like there were like 250 some odd universes, but many of them you couldn't, you would just instantly kill you if you were to go to them. And so to determine which ones you were supposed to go to, you had to ascertain that there were two different paths that people in the past had taken one was to and both involved in numbering the universes in a particular order. And one of them was following the Fibonacci sequence. And that was if you were evil. And then if you were good, it was to follow the prime numbers. Um, and uh, but that these two things intersected. Now, our, our our party was both and also kind of like a lot of parties, like didn't really follow what we were told we were supposed to do. And, so, and ended up like screwing up a lot of things, like a lot of things in the world got very screwed up by, by what our party was doing. So we ended up like following one path for a little while and another path for a little while. We did the whole, like, you know, you get killed by a death claw in the first five minutes of a fallout game by like walking in the wrong direction, right? Like you're supposed to go this way. We went to that place, that place killed us. Right. Um, that kind of thing. Uh, and and so like yes it was I mean there were there were ciphers and codes to decode I mean one of the guys who played in my game was a pretty serious cryptographer professionally at one point I think he never really talks about it but I think he was like pretty serious into codes and decoding things at one point in his life and so like we never really needed to do a ton of code work uh, like the codes that would have needed to have been come up with to stump our party would have been like probably beyond what anybody would reasonably do in their spare time. But there were codes and we did crack them. Mm. Um, it, it's funny if anyone else other than him wanted to do it, you could tell we would like, we would like rush through it. Like you get a message from somebody at night, the night after the session being like, here's, you know, I, I deciphered the code, right? Like, cause I don't want to give everybody else a chance to do it. Cause then I, I won't get a chance to do it. That kind of thing. But no, there were definitely like, like stuff like you would find in like a brain teaser book, you know, like sure. uh, yeah, which yeah, I, yeah. I guess, okay. you know, um, that kind that's of helpful thing. to hear. Yeah. So uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask another question and then uh, maybe we, we yeah. hop off to something else. But since we're uh, in the titular dungeon, I have yes. to ask about the titular dragon, right? And yes. why is he chunky? And why is that important? Why is the dragon my, fat? Yeah. So I mean, my my kind of half baked theory is that it is some um, self deprecating reference to like the entire. Uh, enterprise of Dungeons and Dragons and its money making aspects and how um, you know some corporation has gotten fat off of it 
Um, I, I I don't feel like that's accurate though. So um, uh, Pete Ben, like, please offer up something that does better. It's hilarious uh, that that too, right? Because you, you never see a chunky dragon in these kinds of movies. So you know, it absolutely subverts expectations. But what else is going on there? Uh, I mean, he's a specific character, the chunky dragon. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, he's been around for twenty four years, I believe. <laughs> Um, although I don't, I don't really know. I don't have like any knowledge other than looking up stuff, uh, in the context of this movie to really have a context for this. Like when I think of chunky dragon, I actually think of a specific magic, the gathering card, which has a picture of a chunky dragon on it, uh, which is a dragon that kind of creates a lot of treasure when you attack with it. Um, but its name is, his name is Timber Chowd. Uh, (laughs) um, so, but I think I don't think he's necessarily o- overweight in the in the in the past. Um, I mean, I guess uh, I'm sorry. I'm looking I'm looking through research on it right now. Okay, let me rephrase. Okay, here here's I'm gonna put away the lore. There's a lore reason for why that dragon is who he is. I don't care. Here's my explanation for it. Uh, and this is going to be touching on something that's also key to the concept concepts of Dungeons and Dragons. You familiar with alignment, Mark? Oh uh, yeah, yeah, Kate, good, uh, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like in in the in the traditional Dungeon Dragons style of moral dilemma and moral storytelling, there are these nine alignments, which are a matrix of motivations vis-a-vis good and evil and vis-a-vis law and chaos. Of course, this isn't how it started. It started merely as whether you were kind of on the side of law or on the side of chaos, meaning like the side of the knights or the side of the goblins, that kind of thing. But it, it developed a number of years ago into this very familiar sort of nine by nine system and and thus started the arguments about what the system really meant, what it was about, uh, whether it was worth using. I'm a big fan of alignment. I think it's an unpopular opinion, but I think alignment is very useful. Uh, it's probably from my uh, improv background because it's very useful to have a default point of view about things. And one of the things that alignment gives you if you if you put it in human terms is a point of view about things. Um, so but how do you how do you actually rationalize it? So in D&D alignment, the way I look at it, and, and I think some people would agree with me, some people wouldn't, is that being good is about being selfless or generous to other people. Now, there are a lot of ways you can be good in the world and not be generous or selfless, right? Uh, it, this is not a comprehensive or particularly robust definition of what it means to be good, but it's good enough, right? They're like The degree to which you're good is the degree to which you kind of live your life for others. And the degree to which you're evil is kind of how the degree to which you like live your life only for yourself. Uh, and, and and then this intersects with law versus chaos, which is uh, how the degree to which you kind of follow and abide by and expect and enforce social structures and laws and, and rules and sort of uncomprehensible patterns of behavior and whatnot versus like how little you respect these things, right? How little you respect structure, how little you attend to laws and rules, how much you just by nature rebel against these things, right? So if you're good and lawful, that means that you abide by structures and that you also live your life mostly for others. Uh, for better or for worse, right? And uh, and if you and and now here's the thing: my character in last campaign, the last one I had, was actually a, a dragonborn who worked for a dragon. Uh, that was his concept: is he was sort of an agent who who got treasure for this dragon as his job, right? He would go places and he would steal treasures and he would bring them back to the dragon. Because what dragons? These are chromatic dragons. So in Dungeons and Dragons, the dragons have colors that correspond, at least traditionally, to their alignments. Uh, so that you could tell kind of what a dragon's into based on what color it is, right? Um, but the chromatic dragons, right, which are the ones that are red, blue, black, green, white, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, um, those are all evil, 
<laughs> and then the metallic dragons that are gold, brass, platinum, you know, platinum is the Bahamut, the fancy one, uh, you know, copper, those are good, right? And so the, the gold dragons tend to sort of be like, you know, oh, I, I, I live in a palace far away in a forgotten land, and, and I'll bestow my knowledge to any hero who's worthy, et cetera, et cetera. And the evil dragons are like, I live in a cave, biznatch, right? Like, come get my stuff or I'm going to eat you. Um, and so the so one way to understand the motivations of a, like, evil dragon is that the evil dragon is super selfish. And a lot of these dragons express their selfishness in the, in the state, of, in the case of Smaug, right, by, like, getting a whole bunch of stuff. And as my character would always point out, putting it in a room and looking at it because that's what life is all about, right? Like getting a whole bunch of gold, putting it in a room and looking at it. So it makes sense to make a fat dragon because what you're commenting on is the indulgence, the sort of lack of restraint of the dragon because the dragon is chaotic and doesn't abide by your rules. Uh, even if those rules are those set by down by like the zone book, or by the Atkins diet, doesn't follow any rules, right? And it's also very selfish and self-indulgent, and it just wants, 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 you know? And so a dragon, a, a chromatic dragon of that sort, I would think of as, like, gluttonously sinful. Though the question then, is it, is it gluttony? Is it envy? It wants things. And so making a dragon like that, I think, I'm not saying this is true generally of people who are overweight. I myself am quite overweight these days, and uh, I don't think it's necessarily true of me. Uh, but I think the caricature here is that this is a dragon that just like sits in the belly of the earth and just takes and takes and takes. Right. And so like when it comes time for it to actually get out, it's like too big to get out. Right. It's just sort of grown uh, with, with its with its kind of excess. Um, that's how I that's the vibe that I pick up off that dragon is that it's a dragon that's kind of been in this kind of dungeon. Right. For a super long time. And it's just been fed so many adventurers over the years that it is like grown, grown uh, foie gras upon their uh, upon their bones. Right. Like it is uh, it is ready to be the uh, ready to be attended to by the uh, by the abattoir. Uh, but, you know, one way or the other. I don't know. Uh, ben, as a DM, do you have other feelings? But do you feel strongly about dragons and Dungeon Dragons? I guess that's that's a whole other question. What do you do? You even care about dragons. What's the deal? I mean, with dragons? That, I think that. Because I, I think my explanation for why the chunky dragon is there is because I think one of the things this movie was trying to do was advertise the game, Dungeons and Dragons, right? Yeah. Get new people involved in the game. And so I think they wanted to, particularly with something like a dragon, the the iconic, you know, one of the half of the iconic name of the game was to show that, you know, not that this that this isn't exactly what you're expecting, right? That this is a game that allows for the subversion of expectations. Because that is like one of the fun things of DMing is coming up with, it's the world building, like coming up with new things that will like hopefully delight your players. Like that will hopefully, you know, make them feel like this is a fantastical world. But more importantly, something they haven't seen before, right? If it were just Smaug, right? If the dragon in this movie was just a new, a different Smaug, that wouldn't feel like something new and different. That would just feel like, okay, there's a dragon. Got it. They fight the dragon. They run from the dragon. So they, I feel like they, they wanted to find something new and different because that's just like one of the fun parts of the game is finding, mm. you know, new ways of, of creating a world that feels like a real place and having it be a chunky dragon for the reasons Pete said, like makes sense. Like it's not something you've seen before, but it's also something that, when you see, you're like, oh, that makes sense. He he wants to eat everything, and but he doesn't want to work. He doesn't want to like fly around much. Uh, so he just has this treasure hoard. He attracts the adventurers. He eats the adventurers. Boom, fat dragon, right? Yeah. Like that. 
that that really works as both a storytelling trope, but I think it also works as a way of showing for someone who hasn't seen the game. Oh, that that's kind of fun. You, I didn't know, I didn't know you could do things like that. I thought it just had to be swing sword, kill skeleton, you know, repeat at it at infinitum. Right. Right. Yeah. Apparently the dragon, the lore dragon has like grown too large to ever leave from under the city and is like fed by the people who like attend to it and keep it. And so that they just turn that from ah. being too big to leave to being too fat to leave, which is pretty funny as a change, right? Like it's it's just I'm just too large. I would shake the whole city down around me, that kind of thing. But sorry, Mark, go ahead. Yeah, this is a bit of a tangent, but it's I think it's worth just throwing out there, right? The writers of this movie, I, I believe a couple of important things, right? I believe that a you know they were you know, Dungeons and Dragons players themselves, so no big surprise there. But also, crucially, they they I think I've seen the movie Game Night. They wrote Game yeah, Night. Yeah, they wrote well. Game Night. Yeah. Oh, oh, really? That's, oh, wait, no, I didn't. Yes. I wasn't thinking of Game Night. I didn't watch Game Night, but that looked Game Night is fantastic. Game Night. Game Night is great, and there's also this sense of like the writers. There's kind of this delight of putting their characters in familiar circumstances and then making them uh, in a kind of, in, uh, but but with you know plenty of twists, interesting twists mm. on them. Um, Hor- horrible bosses, another one. One of them wrote. Which is a similar idea, right? Familiar situation, horrible. Sure. Twist. Yeah. No, I haven't seen. I haven't seen that. But um, yeah. Game Night is great. I, I recommend that uh, without reservation. Um, and you know, the, right, it's, it's, it's adults coming together and playing a game and being creative and generative, as well. So um, G- Game Night has a moment that is very Dungeons and Dragons esque, which is the the he died line, which is kind of towards the end of the movie. Uh, you know, spoilers that you know it turns into this real thing. But one of the characters who's like kind of a uh, you know, very domestic, no experience in this crime world, like pushes a guy and shoves him into a jet engine and he gets sucked up. And she's like, yes, <laughs> oh, he died. <laughs> That's very Dungeons and Dragons where it's like you're doing these things and then you realize, oh, wait, oh, that thing would definitely kill that guy. And of course, as a dungeon master, that can be very fun where, you know, somebody does something like, well, I, I need to get away from this guy. So I shove him off the building. It's like, OK. You just killed the noble. Uh, I don't know what to tell you. You shoved him off a building. Like, <laughs> yeah. he, he died. That's your problem now. <laughs> yep, yep. That's your problem now might be a good subtitle for uh, the next Dungeons & Dragons movie. <laughs> Dungeons & Dragons, Honor Among Thieves. Dungeons & Dragons, that's your problem now. Uh, this is, 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 I think, is a, is a, good, is a good way of uh, articulating a lot of the play experience of this game. Uh, you know, Because, again, it is so rooted in violence. Violence is the solution for so many of the problems uh, and that like the and 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 yet so many of the people who play it are are looking for solutions that aren't violent or at the very least are not like completely morally bankrupt. Right. For these problems. And one of the running themes in my campaign was like your attempts to not come up with a your attempts to come up with a nonviolent solution to this problem are going to be inadequate. Right. Like it's like you're going to try, you know, but eventually uh, this is the end of the world. This is not a nice time. People are not going to help you. Uh, you know, like you're going to be pushed into extremists and you're going to and part of it is like, well, what are you going to do when you get pushed into this sort of extreme situation? Um, but, yeah, it's uh, you know, you know, another thing I loved that was felt very familiar was the paladin in this movie. The like the, the who's a DM NPC, right? He's like being run. He's a character who's being run by the dungeon master to give the characters important information that they need in order to complete their quest, right? And like lead them to an important magical artifact. And he has all the characteristics that you would expect a uh, a DM NPC character to have in that he like is perfect at everything. He's super great. He arbitrarily leaves for no reason. Right? Like he <laughs> exactly. <laughs> everybody loves him. He's totally the coolest. You know, and he gets to show up everybody whenever he's around. 
Um, speaking of alignments, quit, there, joke. he does not the, traffic in colloquialisms. There's no better lawful good alignment than the guy who who, who steps over the, the rock because he's just he needs to travel in a straight line. Yeah. Right. <laughs> the ultimate straight. Edge. Yes. yes. One of the descriptions uh, for that kind of mentality is lawful stupid which you don't necessarily have to be, but which is, I think, often ap- applied to the classical D&D paladin who, you know, never, never wavers from their particular choice of things to do, regardless of the situation. Um, but no, it was it was very it was very cool. I like that dynamic, too. What did you guys think of the sorcerer character in this movie? Just to get into the movie a little bit more like like he he I mean, he's the guy from Detective Pikachu. So I was on his side from the beginning because I love that movie. Um, I believe I should name the actor rather than just the guy from Detective Pikachu, which is just incredibly rude. Um, so that and he also is way too low on this IMDb page um, and should be much higher. Um, is that him? Justice Smith, I believe. Uh, yeah, is the actor. What do you guys think of the sorcerer's arc? In I, this, I uh, like the actor. I will say that was for the movie that was trying as hard as it could to be kind of somewhat you know, fidelity to the game. That was probably like a weak point only because they let him bleed between being a D and D sorcerer and being a D and D wizard. Yes. uh, Which is an important (laughs) distinction in, in Mark. So, so in Dungeons and Dragons, a sorcerer has magic just because of like who they are. It's a bloodline or it's a birthright or it's a curse put on them or an enchantment put on them when they were young or whatever. Whereas a wizard has learned magic by consulting arcane scrolls and learning lore and whatnot. Um, uh, and so that character was kind of both, right? He had the magical mm-hmm. bloodline, but it looked like he, he also like was the guy who knew about magical items and how they worked and how to make them and things like that. So he was kind of a, a blend of a couple different magical classes. And, and of course, this is not just his fault. It's also a problem in the game where like, I don't think the sorcerer has a really clear niche in the current game and is often kind of like the magic guy with like the arcana, you know, guy, gal, non-binary, uh, you know, uh, with the, the arcanic, they who like has the arcana check that they need to find out that the magical item works. But I feel like in the actual plays and stories that I've watched where a sorcerer character is done well, they really embrace the idea that the magic is foisted upon them against their will, you know, or like, or like that they, that they aren't fully in control of it. You know, and nor are they going to like and they're achieving control of it is really more about self-mastery than about book learning. Um, and the sense that this guy kind of came around to it through book learning felt inauthentic. And I think in the same way, I felt his love plot was inauthentic. The love plot was stupid. She was never interested in him even a little bit. I don't understand why. I mean, I do understand why that. That also is an unfortunate thing that sometimes happens in Dungeons and Dragons campaigns where you have like <laughs> players attempting to force romances either with like other players, characters or with like. An NPC by the dungeon master. Dungeon master isn't into it. You know, like the, the good player character can't be stopped, right? Like, um, like I, I at one point tried to force a romance between two different dragons that the dungeon that the that the dungeon master hypothetically was running as NPCs, but that he was allowing us to run because he allowed us to manage them in combat so that he didn't have to manage them. So like he would delegate NPCs to us and I would just throw characterization at them, which we, I don't hope it didn't piss him off too much, but like, I would just like have the characters I was running, say things. And I would often like very dramatically change who their characters were by having them do stuff. And so like, I had this dynamic where the two, the two dragons 
the sort of male blue dragon and the female imperial dragon were like calling each other minion in a way that got kind of charged. Like, ah, go do that, my minion. No, you do that, my minion. And I was like, oh, they're pretty into this. Like something's going on between the two of them. And so like just, oh, that's now part of the story, right? Um, in general, right, a lot of these romantic things are really weird and creepy, uh, <laughs> especially when they're unwanted. They are unacceptable. But there are, of course, great stories of romance in tabletop role-playing games that are well-known, and it is very possible to do it successfully. Uh, and I think certain instances of it are very famous. Uh, this was not one of those instances, and I was disappointed uh, in in this um, in this situation. Yeah, a, a, a bad message to send to the tabletop role-playing community is that, guys, if a girl rejects you the first time, all you need to do is just come back a couple years later, ask her to go on a quest with you, and be really good at the quest, and then she'll love you again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that is not a great like, message to send it to, you know, the, nor is it like a good character arc. Like that, yeah. like it is not interesting as a character arc to be like, he really loved this girl. She felt nothing for him. Like, doesn't even like she disliked him or like the classic rom com trope would be she rejected him the first time because a friend of hers told her that he had cheated on her when really he hadn't or something like that, right? That can be cleared up later. Not just like, I'm entirely uninterested in you because you're not very good at your job. What if I was good at my job? Oh, well, okay. Well, then that changes everything. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, that's, that's, that's not a great romance. That's not and a I great I feel like if someone romance. is so disinterested in you that they tell you that you're bad at your job, like getting right. get, getting better at your job is not the answer. Right. Like, the character, <laughs> like... Be, the character arc would be he, like, sees some other cute girl at the end, and she's interested in him because yeah. of, like, the courage he showed in the, the big battle. Like, that, that would be the character arc, not... Uh, what what we got so that, or that he, like discovered the source of his magic was due to some aspect of his personality which he doesn't really have much of a personality in this in the story but like let's say it's like his anger or his fear or his sadness he has like emotions and he gets more <laughs> in touch with his emotions and that makes him more attractive to people because he's living more authentically and he seems more confident and then like he meets somebody who's into him in a, in a way that he nobody's never noticed anyone into him before there's a lot of ways to do it i feel like right under the the big sign that's like we we have gone zero days without the universe being consumed by a Neumann machine is like, and then you turn it to one. All right, one day since the universe has been consumed by a von Neumann machine. Let's keep it going, guys. Let's keep this together. Is the like zero days since someone hit on the druid, right? And it's like, all right, one day, <laughs> one day since someone hit on the druid. Two days since someone hit on the druid. Up. Oh, Turn it back to zero, man. Someone hit on the druid again. Yeah. <laughs> like that's, that's, that's absolutely fair criticism. I think like uh, I. I mostly enjoy enjoyed the sorcerer character um, and, the, and the comedy they brought to it. But also it's like, you know, this sounds, might sound superficial, but it's like high fantasy. OK, I expect a sorcerer slash wizard to be like Gandalf or Dumbledore, like old yeah. white guy with the big beard. And so, like, OK, great. Young black guy. I'm into this. Right. Uh, that's that. That was kind of a it's a very surface level sort of thing. But uh, that was certainly part of it. And of course, like a, I'm sure an intentional choice. Uh, yeah, totally. Wizards of the Coast is very purposeful these days in particular with really, really trying to make the uh, the whole world much more inclusive and equitable, which to so like a good example of this. Right. Is like so the biggest the biggest problem, I think, really, the biggest problem with Dungeons and Dragons with regards to being inclusive and equitable is that it is racially uh, essentialistic. Right. Like that in this world. There are different kinds of people, and those different kinds of people are intrinsically different from each other and are intrinsically good or bad at different things from each other, which is something that these games have really been trying to untangle and get away from. Um, but it's hard to do, right? And 
it's a long there's a long history where it, it's really originally it's not really about you know um it's it's sort of about old theories of history which in and of themselves were problematic but weren't even directly addressing the question of like you know biology you know sort of like uh the elves of old token or like the golden age and so the elves are kind of better than us because we're the you know the the bronze the iron age right and like uh but that whole idea of history is just gone at this point nobody cares and so dungeons and dragons through all of these other these other kinds of stories that have different ways of talking about different groups of people, uh, a lot of which are old and thus like, you know, live in a different Overton window than Dungeons and Dragons currently lives in. It, it, it has this hodgepodge of signifiers. Now, personally, I tend to believe that one of the reasons people get drawn to this is because they see, they don't, they don't see the other characters as the other. They see their own character as an exaggerated model for themselves like like i think for most people playing dungeons and dragons they want there to be exotic kinds of people because they want to be an exotic kind of person right like like i i i want to think of myself as an elf not like i want other people to be orcs right maybe you do you know and i wouldn't rule that out entirely it's certainly not the case in fantasy literature that that's the case but it's like i think a lot of why you want to preserve this sort of thing is to give people symbolic self-expression and i think that people in actual plays and other stories about this kind of tabletop role-playing or this kind of division of people have to come up with creative ways of dealing with that uh dealing with that legacy right um and uh and it's tough it's real tough uh and uh and and it's and it's real tough and i think one of the great ones in this story was the halfling right wasn't there like didn't like michelle rodriguez have a halfling ex-boyfriend it was Bradley Cooper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was Bradley Cooper. I it was, was like, totally man, Bradley they, Cooper. they yeah. managed to get a guy who looks just like Bradley Cooper for this. That that's really impressive. That was actually Bradley Cooper. That was uh um because they I felt like they were leaning on the fact that he was a halfling by making him the antithesis to toxic toxic masculinity in every respect, right? Like making him like super sensitive and super uh like like the hypothetic, you know, the sort of hypothetical ideal toxic man in D D is sort of huge and beefy and violent and like unresponsive to the needs of others. And this is a guy who is the opposite of that. He's very small, but he's also very tender, he's very nice, he's very self-aware, he's he's very kind, but he has boundaries, right? He's he's sort of a very evolved sort of person. And the fact that they made him a halfling was a way of expressing through the symbolism of that of that character visually, like what he's trying to do as a person. Um, I thought that was really well done. And the fact that he was always with big women, right? Like was, uh, was, was, um, was, was part of that was his, he was secure enough in who he was as Bradley Cooper that he could date someone who was like eight foot nine. Right. And it was fine. Um, and he was okay with it. Um, which is not, how Frodo works, right? Like, and his manservant Sam in like the only part of the whole of you know Europe that isn't horrible in their little hobbit hole where they you know smoke smoke their tobacco and stuff. Um, Frodo doesn't work like that. Frodo is not a non toxic halfling. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, Ben, have you ever had to deal with something like that? Like, sort of trying to deal with a character convention that normally brings with it like a ton of baggage. And you have to find some sort of creative way to get around the baggage and get out from under the baggage of that character and recreate it in a new way um, in this sort of high fantasy setting. So not so much a character, but actually my setting. And I, I've, I've mm. kind of just had to roll with this. But when I, you know, I set up 
the world that I wanted my players to play in. And I had this like, you know, backstory for the empire that they were inside of. And my intention was that this empire was mostly good and they were going to have to like range out to, to go find like the baddies before the first session, just by, by reading their backstories, I could tell they all read this empire as evil. Like they were like, they were ready to go to war against, you know, I think just because I called it an empire, I think that was the mistake. I think that, <laughs> and so as a result, like because it's an empire, it must be bad. So all of their backstories were about like how they were going to fight the man, right? And so I just kind of leaned into that, like, okay, I guess we're going to have to do this. Like that's that's the world now is going to be, you know, not totally evil. Like it's not like you know the a bunch of orcs running it, but like there's there's going to have to be some some dark secrets here. Uh, if if I want the players to you know enjoy that that experience because that that's the trope right it's the evil empire so that that's what we're gonna gonna because I didn't start them in a hobbit tent right I didn't start them in like oh you come from a peaceful idyllic village uh, which which they would clearly like have affinity for uh, you know I threw them in this you know big polity and they immediately clocked that as well that must be bad because that's kind of the high fantasy trope one of the funnier stories similar to that in terms of like struggling with high fantasy and like modern politics and the way people lean on it. I did a one shot once. Um, I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast before where I was teaching a couple of my friends to play Dungeons and Dragons. And one of my friends uh, created a character that I thought was a pretty cool character. Both of their characters were, were cool characters. And my wife was in it too. And she made an awesome character who was an elephant, which was great. But, um, but one of my guys characters, he made sort of like a doctors without borders character who was like an underdark traveling healer. So he was a cleric. And he like went through he like he's supposed to live in two worlds. He was supposed to live as a cleric above ground. And then he was supposed to sort of go below ground to the places no one else would go and like treat illnesses and take care of people. And so he sort of lived in the light and lived in the darkness. And my friend named his character Black. Right. And uh, and and submitted like a picture of him to use as the token of a black man. And the dungeon master got incredibly uncomfortable. Right. And like clearly was like trying to say, like, look, like. It's a little bit much like, you know, can you back down? Can you maybe call him something else or change his name? And then and then I wanted and I actually I sort of, you know, this is all virtual. It's all virtual. None of us were in person. And so I side chatted the dungeon master is like the guy who's doing this is black. <laughs> like like he's he's <laughs> he's expressing the guy who's doing this is a black doctor. and He's expressing how he feels as a black doctor. Right. Like being part of like multiple worlds. And like so the fact if anyone oh, else were good. doing this, it would be horrible. But the fact that he's doing it, it's actually very sincere and he really means something meaningful and good by it. <laughs> is, this, is this who is this the person who I think it is? Yeah, but we're not allowed to use his name. Of course not. No, no, no. Yeah, 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 exactly. He's asked me yeah. not to. But yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's like there's all sorts of weird things where when the company does it, nobody is responsible for it. You know, like when Wizards of the Coast publishes it, there's no such thing as context. Everything has to be OK. They, and they've been sort of scrubbing everything and trying to trying to kind of get it to a safe spot. I don't even know if that's ever going to work um, fully to do what they want it to do. But then when you get to the individual players, then stuff like, oh, you know, my character is a sorcerer. What does that mean to you? You know, my character is a druid. What does that mean to you? You know, um, you know, and, and I feel like for some of the characters, we got some of that. Like, I guess I guess Edric as a bard had a certain relationship with performance that sort of felt like it had a personal stakes to it. And I think Michelle Rodriguez's character, I mean, she plays D&D. Um, I mean, she knows how to pronounce Tekken properly. She hangs out with Vin Diesel all the time. They're huge nerds. Um, sorry, Tekken. Um so uh, so I don't doubt that she's played the game and she's like totally knows what she's doing in terms of uh, performing a character like that. 
but uh but yeah all of the character archetypes are difficult um sorry sorry uh i've, I've been going on a little bit um any <laughs> any contributing thoughts well, I, before I, we uh sail off for the evening just one which is that uh kind of along those same lines so we i play online on roll 20 and so you can like show yeah, me too pictures and maps and things like that to, to other players and so like as the dm i'm looking for like pictures of the npcs so the players like have something to go off of and i discovered that the two fantasy tropes that are very hard to get around when looking for npc art is one it's all white people uh right like if you just search for like yeah elf ranger right like the first 50 results are all like white elves and i didn't want that so like i, I went and like found like i wanted like it to be a diverse looking world uh the second even harder problem to get past is it's all extremely horny like oh, yeah. all of the art is extremely horny <laughs> and like we're a bunch of like middle-aged mostly married people like that's not like what my friends are like interested in <laughs> me presenting them in the middle of our, our sunday afternoon D D game uh so you know you have to to range out a little bit and i think wizards of the coast is working on the first problem i don't think they're as worried about the second problem quite as much yeah well i mean as long as you wash your hands of it right we well, got to wash your hands uh everything gets na- that didn't come out the way that i wanted uh, I can't let I can't let on that. I guess. Oh, you said one more thing about the guy's name, Ben. You had mentioned it before. I wanted that to make it into the podcast about that guy's name. Um, uh, what was his name in this in the movie? Oh, the uh, the NPC Jonathan. Yes. Uh, the the <laughs> Aarakocra at the beginning. Uh, that to me, I I have to imagine that's a little reference. That to me scans as the every dungeon master's fear is the player saying, "Well, what's that guy's name?" Yeah. <laughs> well, you 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 know because you had, you had said like oh there's like 20 people in the tavern and there's a guy over by the bar and there's a guy over at the front I'm like well, what's the guy at the front's name uh jarnathan right because you like you don't have anything and you just take a common name and twist it like that i i i that has to be deliberate because that that is such a D D struggling dm name that I, I think that has to be deliberate and I think ending the podcast at this point has to be delivered on our parts as well. There's so much more we could have thought uh, talked about. Um, I really do want to thank my whole play group and my DM especially. And and uh, I wish that um, I could talk for hours and hours and hours about the campaign that we just finished. But um, I'll have to uh, leave that, I think, as something of an exercise for the year. Maybe I'll re- record a podcast for it if anyone's really curious and go through all the themes. Because it's, it's a shame. You write a whole story and nobody gets to read it. Um, but I guess with the... Uh, with the with the Dungeons and Dragons movie, everybody got to see it, um, and now they can see it more if they have Paramount Plus, which is a big if. But hey, you know, stranger things have happened. So who remains is to thank. <laughs> thank you, Ben. Thanks so much for coming. Really appreciate it. Appreciate you, and thanks, Mark. Really appreciate you as always. Uh, and and uh, until next time, you can visit us on, on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably, probably probably doesn't doesn't, doesn't. All right, Mark, roll for performance. What'd you get? Oh, what, what are my options? Oh, it's, it's a D20, right? So, yeah, uh, yeah. oh, oh, 11. It goes to 11, right? Okay. That, yeah, that, yeah, that, that, that sounds that, right. Is that appropriate? Okay. So, like, say the goes to 11 joke again. Oh, it, which, which, which joke? It goes to 11.
Oh, it, it goes to 11. So since you rolled an 11, you make that joke at the end of the podcast. It doesn't really land. It all gets a little bit awkward, right? And then and then you, we sort of walk away and have to figure how we're going to end the next uh, after credit scene. And you, my friend, have just played Dungeons & Dragons. There you go. That's how it works. <laughs> <laughs>